Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, I've worked in the medical device industry for a long time, and I can tell you for much of that time, when developing a new medical device, uh, I wanted to try to figure out the simplest, fastest, most streamlined way to get my product to market through regulatory uh, challenges and, and things of that nature. And it seems like, I, you know, as a product developer, I was more keen or more interested in trying to figure out, could I, could I go the class one path? Is there a way to get my product there? Or, you know, could I do this through a 510K? And it, and it always seemed like, you know, if I was exploring a regulatory uh, pathway and I came across the PMA class three indication that a lot of times that that might have been a kiss of death, that it might have been a reason to, to kill an idea. And that's crazy, you know, isn't it? Or is it? I, I'm not sure. But, you know, maybe the PMA path is not as scary as we might think. And on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, he does a little bit of myth busting about some things that we might have previously thought would have been reasons to not pursue a PMA. So you should listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to learn about some of those myths and ways that the PMA path may not be as scary as you might think. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And we have a topic today that we're going to discuss that, you know, frankly, you know, we haven't spent that much time talking about it. It seems like in the med device world, one of the topics that, that um, when it comes to regulatory seems to dominate is the 510K topic, you know, and maybe justifiably so, but we haven't really spent that much time talking to you about PMA, class three, what that means and all that sort of thing. So good news. Uh, I've got my good friend and a familiar voice on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, and, and I know you're, you're a, you know, a regulatory strategist, an expert uh, for all sorts of things. And, and you and I have talked a lot about 510Ks in the past, and we've talked you know, a little bit more about de novo as, as well. But, but you know, we were commenting the other day that you know, we really haven't spent any time talking about PMAs and what that means. And I, my history in the medical device industry, it seems like... Uh, a lot of companies shy away from that path because of the, well, time and dollars and that sort of thing. But that may not always be a good make good sense. So maybe today we can talk a little bit about, you know, kind of strategic advice for PMA. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What do you think? I think that's a great idea, John. You mentioned that I'm a regulatory strategist, and that is, in fact, what I spend a lot of my time doing. But first and foremost, I'm a biomedical engineer. That's what my PhD is in. That's what my background is in. And uh, from an engineering perspective, this is not a criticism of of class one or class two devices. But I do think that, as a general rule, class three devices um, are much more interesting and oftentimes much more important Mm -hmm. in the sense that they're often life-supporting or life-sustaining devices. Yeah. So why don't we start there? Because I I suspect that there's probably uh, a lot of misconceptions or maybe not a a real thorough understanding of what 
PMA is. So maybe providing an overview of what is a PMA and getting into some of the, the, the depth of that, that might be helpful. Okay, I think I do think that's a great place to start, John. So first and foremost, when it comes to the overall medical device universe, we are talking about a fairly small piece of the pie. In other words, only about 5 to 10% of medical devices are class 3 devices. The vast majority of them are class 2 or class 1 devices, and this is exactly why We've spent so much time in the past talking about 510Ks and de novos, and more importantly, that's where you know most of the, the industry is focused. So in terms of a PMA, um, you know, PMAs are obviously reserved for the highest risk devices, class three devices, oftentimes life-supporting devices. Some of these devices may be invasive. Some of these devices may be permanent implants. But it's important for our audience to remember, John, there are a ton of exceptions. For example, in orthopedics, there are an awful lot of um, uh, permanent implants that we use in orthopedics that are 510Kable, that do not require a PMA. Whether or not a permanent implant should require a PMA or not, that would be perhaps a topic of a different discussion. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, but, but that's the simple reality. Um, and one other thing I thought I would mention, John, in terms of the invasiveness, I see a lot of people make the assumption that if a device is not invasive, then it's not, um, uh, then it's necessarily low risk. Uh, and that's just simply not the case. There are a number of examples of medical devices that uh, do not go inside of a patient's body do not come in contact with the patient, in some cases are not even used in the same room or even in the same building as the patient, and yet they are uh, class three devices requiring a PMA. For there sure. are many examples. My favorite would be an in vitro diagnostic or IVD for cancer, right? So an IVD for cancer does not come in contact with the patient. It's not even used in the same room or, as I said, in the, sometimes in the same building, and yet that device is class three. Right. Why? Because of risk. And sure. specifically, the type of risk I'm talking about here is the probability of providing the wrong information, mm -hmm. telling a patient that they do not have cancer when in fact they do. For sure. False negative. Or telling the patient they don't have cancer. Uh, sorry, telling the patient they have cancer when in fact they don't. A false positive. And one last thing I'll say about the, um, the assumption that so many people make that non-invasive devices are low risk. This was actually reflected for many, many years in the EU classification guidance flowchart. If you look at that flowchart, and perhaps we can provide it as a, as a link to the podcast, sure. it says, is the device non-invasive? If no, if it's non-invasive, it's, uh, it's automatically low risk. And that's just simply not the case. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's and the cancer IVD is is a, a good example, and I think there are, are countless others. But you know, you think about the outcome. You know, the 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 purpose of the device is to do something, right? And if and if we're presenting results to a patient that are wrong, well, <laughs> that can prevent them from getting treatment, or they could be getting treatments that they don't need. And you know, cancer is is um, is certainly one of those things where if you tell a patient that they have cancer and they don't, and they start going through a whole chemotherapy regime. I mean, talk about, that's, that's not good. So I, I totally 
totally makes sense. Or the other side of that, John, which is well, even worse, sure. telling the sure. patient that they don't have cancer when in fact they do. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you and I have talked about risk many times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I would invite the audience. I was fortunate enough to do a webinar for Greenlight last year, I think, on my particular approach to risk. So if anybody is interested in that specifically, we can provide a, a pointer to that as well. Yeah, and I, and I think that, um, you know, not to, to go too much on a tangent, but I think that that whole concept of risk has, has been a bit, um, let's say, maligned or abused or misused. And and um, the the webinar that Mike mentions is, is really a good synopsis, you know, really kind of, you know, he has the bucket approach. And uh, I guess I'll leave that as the teaser. And, and uh, yeah. <laughs> it is a different approach. It's not the ISO or the FDA or anything. It is a different approach. But it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good methodology because, you know, folks were, you, you probably have heard me say this a time or two, but we make medical devices and we're trying to improve the quality of life. We're trying to save life. And, and on all those sorts of things. So, you know, let's, let's have a pa- patient-centered approach when it comes to risk. Um, so anyway, that's all I'll, I'll say about that. I'll, I'll step off the soapbox now. But okay. um, <laughs> the, the notion of, you know, we've, you know, as I mentioned on the onset, we, we spent a fair amount of time talking about 510Ks. And, and I, you know, that's kind of the workhorse in FDA med, med device is that 510K. And, of course, the 510K, the, the big premise is that we're, Demonstrating substantial equivalence to a predicate device. Uh, what is what is a, a predicate device? Substantial equivalence. Does that have any any bearing, or or does it make any sense from a PMA standpoint? It's a great question, John. So another of the very common questions that I get in the PMA universe is, can I use a predicate uh, to show substantial equivalence for a uh, for a PMA device? Now. Technically speaking, from a regulatory perspective, there is no concept of substantial equivalence. You can't just simply show that our device is basically the same as the other guy's device. Therefore, end of discussion. Um, But I use the concept of substantial equivalence, the regulatory logic, if you will, of substantial equivalence in the PMA world all the time. And there are two um, uh, general areas where I use this, first in terms of testing and second, in terms of risk. So in terms of testing, one of the first things that I do when I'm working on a PMA as an engineer myself, I will look at what kind of testing that other, pro- other companies have done for similar PMA class three devices. And I will use that as a starting point. And then when I go into the FDA, I'll say, here's our new device. But oh, by the way, it's similar. I won't say substantially equivalent. I'll say it's similar to these other PMA devices. Here are the testing, um, here's the testing matrix that the other companies used. So I'm going to use that as a starting point. So that's how I use the concept of substantial equivalence in terms of testing. I do exactly the same thing in terms of risks. In other words, if there are other products out there, and by the way, I'm not limiting myself here to just the United States. I'm truly taking a global view. So I'll look at other products on the market, for example, that are PMA devices here in the U.S., and I'll look at their risk mitigation strategy. And if they're using ways, methods to mitigate risk of their technology, I'll use that as a starting point for my PMA as well. So again, from a, from a, a strict theoretical regulatory textbook perspective, 
There's no concept of substantial equivalence in the PMA world. Yet, from a regulatory logic perspective, I use substantial equivalence all the time in the For PMA sure. world. Well, and, and I think that's really an important point. I mean, there are, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out, you know, what else is, well, at least me as an engineer, I guess I, let me preface it by saying that when I am, as an engineer, a product development engineer, designing, developing a product, um, one of the things that I try to n- know or learn as quickly as I can is what else is similar to what I'm doing. And not that I'm trying to do a me too per se, but I want to know if there's any sort of precedence, you know, that, that has been set with a, a technology or a product or, or some sort of, you know, device in the space that I'm working on. Cause, cause that's knowledge that I can gather and glean and learn from. Um, sometimes I can learn uh, from the things that others have done that were good. And other times I might be able to learn, uh, from things that maybe weren't so good, and you know, and, and <laughs> you know, uh, you know, maybe it's a risk factor again. But like, a good example is if I'm developing a class three PMA product, and there are other products that are in that space that you know that might already be on the market. You know, I could go. One example is I could go to like the the mod database from FDA. I can see what kind of problems they're having, and I can make sure as a a, a, a prudent engineer that I'm making sure that I'm addressing those risk scenarios into the design and development of, of my particular product. Well, I agree 100%, John, uh, with what you just said, with, very, with one very small modification. Sure. I would not say I could do things like going to the mod database. I would say I do do those things, going Touché. to the mod database. As yeah. a matter of fact, not because it's required or FDA tells me to do, but because it's the right thing to do. You know, I want to demonstrate first and foremost to my friends at the FDA that I do know what the heck I'm doing. I'm not just simply checking off boxes on a form, and I'm learning from, to, to you know, to, to paraphrase what you just said, other people's mistakes. And this, this happens very frequently, especially in the PMA world. And one other piece of strategy advice I would give, John, um, fortunately for me, a good chunk of my business is bringing products uh, to the FDA that are truly new and novel, not just simply Me Too's. But from the FDA's perspective, they're obviously very nervous when it comes to things that are new or novel for all of the obvious reasons. You know, there's no history and so on. So when I go to the FDA in those situations, I say, here's my new device. There's nothing out there that's like it. But on the other hand, then what I do is I decouple uh, or break down the technology into individual components, and I try to find similarities to other devices that are already out there. So in other words, I say, on one hand, this is a new device, but on the other hand, it's really not new. It's just a combination of a bunch of old things that we're putting together perhaps for the first time. From a regulatory strategy perspective, John, that makes that pill much easier for FDA to swallow. You know, it's it's um, it's really terrific advice, um, Mike, because a lot of regulatory professionals and even product developers, for that matter, I think we get, um, well, I don't know what the right word is, but I think sometimes we forget that we're storytellers. And I don't mean we're making things up. I mean that... You know, <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but we have a, we have a, it's like if I... If I go to the movie, you know, or read a book, why am I doing that? Because I think it's going to be a good story. I think it's going to be something that's fascinating and and exciting and exhilarating. Well, we as product developers, as regulatory professionals, we have that same sort of opportunity and, and one might even argue responsibility regarding our product. And 
And so we have a story to tell. And sometimes we get, you know, kind of mired in the minutiae of, of the engineering test for this and you know, the analysis for that and so on, which don't mishear me, very, very important. But let's make sure we can explain our product, our position, and, and why this is good for the patient. You know, again, I keep coming back to that. I think that's really important. Well, once again, John, I love your metaphor of sto- a storyteller because when I go to the FDA, and as you know, I'm down there very frequently, at least once a month, sometimes more, um, I tell a story. That's exactly what I do. I tell a story. And uh, it should be nonfiction, by the way. It shouldn't be fiction. (laughs) For sure. But I tell a story. And I'll give you a quick example. One of the very first things that I love to do in my presentations, I do this a lot in pre-subs, for example, before getting into the engineering, before getting into the uh, biology, before getting into the regulation, I start out, I like to put what I call a clinical face on the problem. In other words, I will literally show on the screen a picture of a patient or sometimes a video of a patient, and I'll say, meet Mary Smith. Before, um, before using our device, Mary Smith was not able to do X, Y, and Z. As a result of using our device, she is now able to do X, Y, and Z. Some people accuse me of pulling on people's uh, emotional first strings. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, that, that is exactly what I'm doing. But on the other hand, I'm reminding people that we're not just talking about the biology or engineering or regulation here. For we're sure. talking about people's lives, and especially yeah. in the Class 3 PMA world, where these are often life-supporting or life-sustaining products. I think that's something that all of us need to remember. No, totally, totally with you there. I mean, the, the more we can humanize what we're doing, uh, you know, it's, it serves a purpose. You know, we're trying to save lives. We're trying to support life. I think that's a really, really key point. And, and the storytelling, I think, is, is something that um, all of us as medical device professionals can do a better job of telling nonfiction stories about our products and processes. So, um, you know, kind of related to the, you know, the Mary Smith example, you talked about, you know, look at Mary and this is what the way her life was before uh, our product. This is, uh, after our product, which kind of leads me to the next question. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom that, that I think a lot of us are, are conditioned with is that all PMAs require clinical data. Um, is that true? Yeah, this is exactly what a lot of people think. Unfortunately, those people are totally wrong. This is sometimes what FDA thinks. Unfortunately, they're totally wrong. Uh, the vast majority of PMAs do require clinical data. There's no question about it. But notice I'm saying the vast majority. I'm not saying all. Some PMAs, granted not many, but some PMAs do not require clinical data. And since the, since the audience is so familiar with the 510K, let's do a quick compare and contrast to the 510K. The vast majority of 510Ks do not require clinical data. But again, notice I'm saying the vast majority. Some, and that number is rapidly growing, uh, 510Ks do require clinical data. So the question becomes, how do we know for a device, whether it's a PMA or 510K or de novo or what have you, how do we know whether or not that device requires clinical data and if so, how much? Well, this is not an answer that we should find in the regulation. This is an answer based on uh, how well established the technology is. In other words, if it's been around for a very long time, um, what the pathophysiology is, what the risks are, and so on. In other words, there's a lot of factors that go into the question of whether or not a device needs clinical data or not. The regulation should not be one of them. And even if FDA says, you know, you need to do uh, a clinical trial, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do a clinical trial. You know, as we've talked about before, John, FDA can ask us to do anything they want. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do it. If we can push back and say, look, this technology is so well established, there's no new information that we would get, then we can easily push back and make that argument. And one other thing that I would mention on the clinical data requirements, John, and that is a lot of people see this as a binary decision. You no, know, it's either you have to do a clinical trial or not. I think the better question to ask is um, how much clinical data do we need? In other words, if we can show, for example, that our technology is well established, that the risks are understood, that the disease is understood, uh, then we might be able to, I hate, I hate to phrase it this way, but we can get away with or justify doing a much smaller clinical trial uh, than if the technology was brand new or the risks were not understood or that type of thing. I'll give you a perfect example, bare metal coronary stents. Uh, never mind even drug-limiting stents, but just a bare metal coronary stent. Was the level of difficulty to get the first bare metal coronary stent onto the market almost 20 years ago the same as it is today? Absolutely not. Because today, the mechanism of action is much better understood. The risks are much better understood. Will we need to do a clinical trial? Of course. But we might be able to get away with a trial of maybe a few tens of patients as opposed to a few hundred patients. There's a big difference there. So in my sure. opinion, John, the question of whether or not we need clinical data should not be answered by the regulation. It should be answered by the biology and the engineering. For sure. Uh, folks, talking with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences today, and, and we're talking about strategic advice for PMA manufacturers. Just uh, wanted to, to remind all of you as we're going through this, uh, Greenlight Guru, we, we have an EQMS software platform that's been designed by medical device professionals specifically for the medical device industry. And, and why does that matter for PMA product? Well, there are certainly things that you need to be doing during the design and development process, such as your design and development activities, design controls, risk management. Those are all uh, proof, the evidence that we're designing products that are safe and effective to meet the indications for use. doesn't matter, in my opinion, whether what your class of product is, whether it's a class one or a class two or a class three PMA, design controls are foundational for, for telling your story that your product is safe and effective. So Mike, let's get, let's kind of start to talk about um, kind of maybe some pros and cons or advantages and disadvantages of a PMA versus a 510K. I assume there are some. Do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, let's let's start out with a premise, John, and that is, given a choice, if a company has a, has a choice between going for a 510k versus a PMA, uh, I think you and I and probably most of our audience would agree that 99.999% of the time they're going to opt for the 510k. But there are some significant advantages to a PMA, especially when it comes to what I call reg uh, competitive regulatory strategy. So I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that we're coming out with a new device that we're in the kind of gray area. We're sort of between class two and class three. It could go either way. It would be very tempting to bring this to the FDA as a class two, as a 510K, or perhaps as a de novo. And that would make our job easier. But who else's job would it make our, uh, easier? Our competition. 
And so if we're working in a large medical device company, which is nothing more than code speak for having a lot of time and a lot of resources, and our competition are a bunch of startups and small and VC-funded companies, uh, it might be advantageous to us to set the bar higher to go to the FDA and argue that this is a class three, a PMA. And by the way, it's much easier for me to sell a class three device at the FDA than a class two because we're already at the top of the pyramid. There's nowhere to go from up. The advantage is, although it might make our job a little bit harder, it's also going to make our competitor's job harder to follow in our footsteps. And I guarantee, John, because I've seen this happen many times, if the competition finds out that the, the folks that are a little bit ahead of them have set the bar at the PMA level, that's going to cause them to immediately reevaluate their technology strategy as well as perhaps their regulatory strategy. It might even cause them to close their doors and go out of business today. That's just yeah. one of many examples of what I call competitive regulatory strategy, using regulation as a, as a tactical weapon to your, to your advantage. Yeah, and... and um... And I think that's important. And, and um, I always like in a, a PMA in, in some respects, and, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this from a, even from a de novo standpoint is you know, med device industry is often very keen to things like intellectual property and patents and things like that. And while a PMA is not a patent per se, it, it is in some respects um, you know, a way to, to strengthen your position from an IP standpoint as well. It certainly is, and the way I like to describe it, John, it's certainly not a barrier to entry like a like a, um, a patent would provide, but it can provide at least a speed bump in the road. So um, let me throw a twist in on this. I mean, the fees for a PMA, um, well, unless it's your first, uh, the, the fees for PMA are substantially more than a 510K. And if I'm, I'm a startup company and... Um, you know, I'm putting you on the spot here. This, this, <laughs> but I know you'll 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 handle this uh, as you always do with good regulatory strategy. But it, let's say I'm a, a startup with or an early stage company with a finite amount of of capital. Uh, you know, I can get a five ten k for you know a few thousand dollars really, and and the PMA might be a lot more time consuming, a, a lot more costly. Uh, it's going to take more work and, and that sort of thing. I mean, is that true? Well, in terms of the user fees, John, regrettably, you are exactly correct. The user fees for PMAs are much, liar, much larger. For 510Ks, we're talking, you know, give or take five to $10,000, depending on the company size. In the PMA universe, um, we're talking 77000 to a little over 300000 once again, depending on the company size. As you mentioned, though, it's important for people to understand, especially in small or startup companies, that your first PMA is free. So that is an incentive that Congress created for more medical device companies, especially small companies, to, to consider doing this. Um, so I understand that you know user fees can be a, a significant cost. However, um, we have to, you know, be honest here, compared to the cost of the overall development process, you know, maybe that user fee is, is not as significant as, 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 uh, as it might seem to some people. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is that is the cost of doing business. And, uh, and so we have to factor that into our, our, our business calculus. But more importantly, John, another question that I get, and this is an underlining assumption that many people in our industry make, 
and that is comparing the PMA to the 510K. A lot of people think that the testing requirements for the PMA are higher, that the um, amount of time uh, is longer, that the risk is higher, all those kinds of things. In general, that's true, but when you think about it, uh, it should be that way because we're talking about devices that are often life-supporting or life-sustaining. We're talking often about devices that are technologically more complex than 510K devices. So it does make sense. But here's how my approach differs from so many other people uh, you know, in, in, in this industry. In, in my opinion, as a professional biomedical engineer, the amount of testing, the amount of clinical data and so on should absolutely not be a function of the regulatory pathway. In other words, it should not be a function of PMA versus 510K versus de novo. Those things are nothing more than the package that we put this information in when we send it to the FDA. What, sh what should it go into the calculus to determine the testing requirements, the clinical data burden, and so on? Is the technology, how well established is it? Is it the risk? Is, you know, the, the, the pathophysiology and the disease and so on? Uh, and that is independent of the regulatory pathway. And the reason why this is so yeah. important is because regrettably, John, and perhaps you've seen this as well, there are a number of medical device companies, including a few of the largest medical device companies on earth that have, as a matter of business policy, decided that they will not pursue a device that is a class three PMA because of this underlining assumption that PMAs are inherently more work. And uh, I just don't see it that way. Um, and uh, uh, more importantly, I just think that's really holding us back. Yeah, I mean, so folks, let me let me kind of summarize a few things that that I think are very key points uh, that that um, well, argue, uh, Mike is, in my opinion, he shared some things that can debunk some of the reasons why we don't go down the PMA path. One of the first things that he debunked was not all PMAs require clinical data. And sometimes people look at, oh, if I have to go down the PMA path, I have to do this long, extensive, expensive clinical study. Um, that is not necessarily true. So that's, that's um, you know, uh, I guess fact number one that's or conventional wisdom number one that's debunked. Uh, the and, other, and John, if I could just interrupt yeah. just real quickly, I'm sorry, um, but that reminds me uh, in debunking uh, that number one, as you just mentioned, if we're doing a device that's 510Kable, but we're going to do a clinical trial anyway, then what I often suggest to the company is if we're going to do a 510K with clinical, then why not just do a PMA? Yeah. You know, there's not a big difference between a 510K with a clinical trial and a PMA. Uh, yes, there are more manufacturing requirements, more um, post-market surveillance requirements. But other than that, there, you know, th that's just paperwork. There's not a huge difference. Yeah. And, and the, those other requirements uh, to, from a PMA standpoint, guess what, folks? It's called your quality management system. Guess what? It's something you're going to have to do anyway. So, you know, it's not like it's uh, necessarily extra above and beyond work that you wouldn't have to do uh, for a class one or a class two device. Here's the other thing that, that um, Mike uh, has helped us uncover and debunk. If this is your first PMA, the, the user fee excuse uh, as far as the cost is concerned, yeah, that goes away because your first PMA is free. So, you know, there's another compelling reason to to consider PMA as a path. Really interesting. Um, so, and as Mike also just mentioned is, 
you know, it by and large, it might not be substantially more work, but it might, from a product positioning standpoint, give you a better uh, a better edge in the marketplace uh, with your product too. So, definitely some things to consider. Um, so, if a device is class three, is is that is that de facto mean? It, without a doubt, we always do a PMA. Uh, great question, John. And the short answer is absolutely not. If we're working in the PMA universe, uh, I'm sorry, if we're working in the class three universe, the PMA is one option, and it's, of course, the most common option. But other options would include the humanitarian device exemption, or HDE, uh, as well as the product development protocol, or PDP. I know we're getting a little short on time, so I won't get into those in detail. But suffice it to say, those are often less regulatorily burdensome than a traditional PMA. And as a result, I love to use both the HDE and in some cases the PDP as a label expansion. In other words, simply put, uh, most medical products, we have to show that the product is safe and effective. But remember, I'm saying most, I'm not saying all. Average regulatory professionals know the rules, but the best ones know the exceptions. The HDE is an exception to that. We do not have to show efficacy for an HDE. Instead, we have to show what we call probable benefit. Now, what's the difference between efficacy and probable benefit? We don't have time to get into a detailed discussion of that, but the simplest way I can explain it is it's efficacy at a, at a lower statistical power. In other words, efficacy with fewer patients. And so simply put, we can get an HDE device onto the market with much less data than a, than a PMA. And as a result, we can then go back to the FDA later as a label expansion to go after a bigger market. Uh, and this is a strategy that I've used a number of times. This is a strategy that some other companies have used. But uh, the short answer to your question, John, is if you're working in the class three universe, a, P a PMA is certainly one option, and there are several different subtypes of PMAs but uh, it's not the only option. And a good regulatory professional needs to understand all of the different options that they have, not just the common ones, not just but the, the vanilla flavored ones, but all of the different options and the advantages and disadvantages of each. Because quite frankly, if you don't know what all your options are, how can you decide what's the best path for you in that particular situation? In other words, how can you do your job? Yeah, good points. All right, so let's let's wrap up uh, today's conversation on on um, strategic advice for PMA with um, maybe one last myth. Uh, I guess we'll determine if if this is a myth that you can debunk or not. But I think sometimes I, you know, if I were to think I'm gonna okay, I'm a I'm a company. I decide, yeah, I'm gonna go down this PMA path, and uh, I'm gonna you know do all the things that I need to do. But one last hang-up for me might be, if I do all the work with a PMA product, did I just pave the path for somebody else to come in behind me and, and go to market via 510K? Is that true? Well, it's a great question, John. It's another very common question that I get from people. And that is, once I bring my device onto the market as a PMA, can somebody else follow in my footsteps using a 510K? Uh, the textbook answer is no because we're talking about class three devices. And 99.999% of the regulatory professionals out there would also probably say no. But I'm not interested in what the majority thinks. Um, I'm not interested in just being average. 
because remember, I said uh, average regulatory professionals know the rules. The best ones know the exceptions. It is possible to bring the same device onto the market as a 510K after somebody else has done it as a PMA. And I'll give you a, a possible uh, scenario. I mentioned the bare metal stent earlier. So sometimes people ask me, well, there's already a ton of bare metal stents on the market. Can I bring a new bare metal stent to the, to the market as a 510K rather than the PMA? Well, the short answer is no, but there's a possibility. If the indication for your bare metal stent is coronary atherosclerosis, then there's no chance that you're going to do this as a 510K. You must do it as a PMA. However, if you can somehow come up with a different indication, a different reason for putting a bare metal stent in a coronary artery for something other than atherosclerosis, for example, for vasospasm, it might be possible, I say not might be, it is possible to go to the FDA and argue that the, uh, because the indication here is vasospasm, that the risk is lower to justify putting it in the class two bucket. And as a result, we can do it as a 510K or perhaps as a de novo. So bottom line, uh, most people think that once a device is a, is a PMA, it will always be a PMA. That's often true, but it's not always true. Mike, this has been enlightening you know, for me, and I, I hope all of you listening have found a nugget or two or five uh, that uh, you can take back to your companies to, to really, frankly, reconsider this as a a path, you know, this is this is not gloom and doom as as historically many companies think. You know, just because I know companies think, oh, it's class three PMA, it's like the kiss of death to my company. That's not true. We just de- debunk some of those, some of that head trash on on this topic. So go back, reevaluate, and I would encourage you if you're if you have questions about this topic, you should reach out to Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and um, use. You know his knowledge, his experience, his way to navigate these regulatory waters to your advantage as well. Mike, thank you so much for for being a guest on this topic. And I, and I know there's a lot more that we can cover on this PMA topic. What do you think about maybe a, a, having another podcast here soon, and maybe we can explore what's new in the PMA world as a, a kind of a follow up to this. I think that would be a wonderful idea, John. I would love to talk about what's new in the PMA world. There are some uh, suggestions being floating or floated around. Some of them, I think, have some advantages. Some of them, quite frankly, have some concerns to me. Yeah. And then I also have uh, a proposal that I've floated myself for creating a version of the PMA that's specifically for non-Me Too products. In other words, a de novo for Class Three uh, devices, if you will. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I would love to be able to talk about that in a in a future All discussion. Right. All right. So we'll, folks, we'll get that on the books uh, here soon. But uh, in your quest for greatness in the medical device industry, uh, you know, we we need to make sure that we're focusing on on what's good for patient, of course. But you know, part of that is also making sure that we have a solid quality management system, you know, an infrastructure in place. Uh, to, to make our lives, frankly, easier as medical device professionals. I'm, I'm not saying we're cutting corners, but you know, certainly if you're of that mindset and you're looking at your processes and your procedures and you're, and you're dreading you know, filling out a certain form and it's overly burdensome and it takes extra time and effort, you know, maybe there's a better way. Uh, maybe there's a simpler path. Maybe we can help you at Greenlight Guru. So 
you know, reach out to us, uh, www.greenlight.guru. Take a little bit of time to learn how we are changing the mindset of the medical device industry when it comes to your quality management system. Learn how we're shifting that mindset from being a checkbox compliance focused person to becoming a true quality professional. If that's at all interesting to you, then we should talk. Once again, this is John Spear, your host, founder, and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.